Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. I'm joined today by Jacob Siegel, senior writer at Tablet and co-host of Manifesto, a podcast with Phil Cly, which I uh, had the pleasure of appearing on uh, maybe somewhere around a year ago, a little bit more. That sounds right. Yeah. So um, it's, uh, and and the discussion concerned repressive tolerance by Herbert Marcuse. And I thought, um, you know, first of all, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And, and second of all, I thought maybe we could revisit that in light of events, um, Elon Musk taker of Twitter and the reactions to it, because I think, you know, it's, I, I continue to, um, I mean, since then, it's rarely been um, out of my mind, uh, repressive tolerance, and I've sort of been revisiting it in light of various things that have been going on. Um, but I'm just curious for your thoughts on, you know, how it might inform our thinking about the the Musk brouhaha. Yeah, I, I just wrote a piece for a tablet that ran, I believe, uh, yesterday. We're talking on a Thursday. So this is sometime toward the end of April. I think it's the 28th today. So anyway, it, it ran toward the end of April on um Basically, the the framework was that this sets up a kind of battle between the current political ruling class with uh, Obama as its figurehead operating under the banner of the kind of uh, total administrative state justified through a counter disinformation mission on the one hand versus what appears to be this coalescing counter elite led by uh, led by Musk, but including a number of other billionaires who, for whatever reason, um, and I think, you know, the, the reasons are not necessarily obvious with all of them, but who, for whatever reason, are are coalescing around this idea of um, reinforcing uh, the kind of free speech, uh, public ethos and some set of public rules along those lines in uh, in discourse and in political discourse in particular, perhaps. So Musk takes this over and is, of course, you know, he as soon as the announcement came out that he was looking to acquire Twitter, the kind of um, repressive tolerance people, the people who are have in some sense inherited Marcuse's idea that um, we must deny free speech to those who stand in the way of progress. Uh, those people who are now in control of the state, as it were, um, and operating in in conjunction with various power centers in America, you know, went into like a, a kind of freak out that we've seen maybe 50 times in the past five years, but skipped the preliminary stages, went straight to um, Musk is a Nazi. There was no like um, towing up to the fascism this time. It was just straight to the fascism. And so, I mean, I, I see it as related to uh, Marcuse's idea of repressive tolerance in really interesting and, and kind of hilariously perverse ways insofar as 
Marcuse's idea has been instantiated and um, BlackRock, which, you know, owned controlling shares in Twitter uh, prior to the Musk purchase, along with Vanguard Group and uh, and the kind of party apparatus that has made it its mission to control platforms like Twitter, um, they are the inheritors of this idea and the extent to which they honestly believe it versus uh, it's a kind of ideological superstructure that's convenient is interesting and we can discuss. But, you know, that that to me seems to be the line from Marcuse to the present. Right. So, I mean, just to briefly recap some of the essay, um, you know, essentially he counterposes what he sees as the the sort of false regime of free speech or the the unreality of free speech under the kind of uh, beneath the the formal um, preservation of, you know, sort of constitutional preservation of it, which, you know, he argues is essentially, um, you know, you have a um, sort of regime, a sort of um, apparatus of sort of total domination through media propaganda that is so powerful as to um, that it, it can essentially allow dissenting voices to be heard, but also be sure that they will essentially be drowned out by this um, array of forces that um, sort of hammer home the um, the propaganda on behalf of the the sort of status quo power structure. And so then he proposes what he describes as this kind of utopian, although we might also say dystopian. Um, um, response to this, which is that, you know, we, that the left should cease to um, advocate for free speech and instead should advocate for essentially free speech on behalf of those who advocate for um, progress, revolution, etc. And suppression of the, you know, reactionary um, advocates of the status quo, right? And so, yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's clear that this is kind of the playbook, right? And that you saw um, you saw people pretty explicitly, you know, in sort of op-ed after op-ed, <laughs> arguing that, you know, that, um, you know, Musk's sort of, you know, once upon a time relatively anodyne doctrine of sort of traditional free speech, which anybody who grew up in the 90s would think of as sort of a standard ACLU kind of position, you know, according to these, um, you know, various op-eds and panic Twitter threads and so on is a fundamental reaction, fundamentally reactionary because it ensures that essentially, you know, the white male um, power structure will continue to dominate society. Right. And therefore what we need is a, a sort of moderating, um, what we need is, is is a set of kind of moderating structures and institutions that will suppress a kind of a kind of speech affirmative action or something like that that will that will um, weaken the the power that these sort of um, traditional forces of the status quo you know continue to hold on to and allow these supposedly marginalized voices although all of these marginalized voices sort of have you know New York Times op eds and things um, and to, to be clear. To Right. Yeah, the the white male status quo that you're referring to in this case is not BlackRock, right? Right, the exactly. Globe-spanning investment fund that owns a controlling share of Twitter now. BlackRock is the guarantor of the marginalized and the oppressed. 
the white male status quo that would be unleashed by the uh, reactionary forces of free speech refers to anonymous Twitter accounts engaging in, you know, puerile and often, you know, whatever racist, sexist banter. But but that's that is the uh, structural white supremacism in this case is anon Twitter accounts, not BlackRock and Vanguard. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and right. This is where the, um, you know, I, ironically, uh, you know, much of the the sort of discourse coming out of um, the New York Times, other mainstream outlets, you know, basically, again, reaffirms this idea that they are the ones who are fighting on behalf of the right to speak of the marginalized. And therefore, what needs to be done is is a sort of um, preservation and intensification of this, um, this sort of, you know, moderating apparatus that sprung up particularly in the Trump years, again, the function of which, as you say, is is largely to suppress this this kind of spectral threat of this this mob of of dangerous, you know, fascist white men who are going to um, victimize them. Right. So so it's a I mean, and so part of what's and this kind of gets me to the the twist, which is that I I think, you know, the way that we have to sort of um, read repressive tolerance kind of against the grain is is to see that structurally um it's it's actually these kind of you know weirder and more marginal formations that seem to be in the in the position that Marcuse describes the left as being in in the in the 60s right that that i mean and he's writing kind of at the dawn of the new left um so he he's still kind of imagining this you know I mean, what he described is this kind of one-dimensional world where, you know, this this culture industry and sort of administrative state alliance had suppressed any meaningful possibility of dissent and created this kind of, homo- you know, we have to imagine this kind of 50s homo- homogenized culture of this kind of stifling consensus um, where every, you know, where the workers' movement had been co-opted into capitalism through, you know... Um, having access to consumer goods and you know being able to buy homes and so on. So, so this is kind of Marcuse's thesis at at this time, right? That that there's you know the, the traditional avenues of of dissent have all been um, not not quashed through repression, but instead kind of co opted and um, compromised. And so so we have this one dimensional society, and you know basically this is also where he comes to claim that. You know, the only, um, you know, basically to originate this idea that you have to turn to these kind of new social movements and these kind of marginal um, social groups um, for any kind of revolutionary potential. But here he's just arguing, you know, structurally, the sort of forces of dissent are, are so weak that the only way for them to um, to gain any kind of footing would be to somehow suppress this, um, you know, massive apparatus of, of which is uh, a wonderful paradox. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, how would you have the power to suppress this if you were actually as disenfranchised as the premise suggests? Right. And so this, you know, makes me this, this is sort of what what made me conclude that structurally, if, you know, the people who seem to be in or feel themselves in something like the position that Marcuse saw his sort of side in at the time are actually largely on the right, right? They're people who, 
basically see this this kind of full spectrum domination by you know BlackRock, the New York Times, etc. And um, you know they're so they're engaged in this. I mean, on one hand, they're you know as we see with Musk, they'll sort of ally themselves with this kind of advocacy of a more neutral public sphere. But then I think on the other hand, you do see some of them kind of gravitating towards a more Marcusean argument that, that what we need to do is not not simply re-neutralize the public sphere, but what we need to do is actually actively, you know, use whatever power we can gain to actively suppress these um, forces, right? And their their sort of ideological control. And so you know, if you think about some of the the sort of um, some of the sort of attempts on the right to um, you know ban critical race theory, ban gender ideology in schools, you know, by kind of marshalling these like suburban this, these sort of networks of like suburban parents and so on, and you know, using them to, I mean, partly because I think there, there's a bit more leeway in the in the sort of provincial. Um, you know, sort of state houses to, um, I mean, it, you know, it would seem that there are sort of politicians who are less subject to the standard um, incentives. Yeah, I, and, I, I and think there, there's, and, that's yeah. very true. And so, so I, you know, I sort of see these, a, a lot of these recent initiatives, right, which are, you know, and so people are, I mean, and then people say, oh, I thought you guys just cared about free speech. Um, but now you're like banning this and that from schools. <clears throat> and it's like, well, essentially it is this, this sort of an effort, right? Where they're, they're trying to marshal whatever power they can gain to try to um, suppress the sort of propagandistic capacities of this incredibly powerful enemy they think they're confronting. And, you know, whether that in the long run has, has any, you know, prospects beyond these, these sorts these sorts of laws, I, I don't want to predict, but, you know, I think, I think in a way Marcuse allows us to reconcile that apparent, or I, you know, I, I don't know how much of a paradox it is. I mean, I think, you know, basically people on the left will see this and sort of call out hypocrisy on, on the right, but they themselves are sort of not even pro free speech anyway. So I'm not sure what that means. No, nor do they claim to be anymore. Right. I mean, no, the, no. the, that was a, there was a kind of transitional phase during which the left still uh, pretended to be invested by the left. I mean, largely here, the kind of liberal progressive uh, hybrid uh, version of the left, which is obviously the dominant institutional one. You know, there was a transitional period where it, that, structure claimed to be invested in free speech and and had to sort of go through all of these rhetorical contortions to square its obvious uh, campaigns of censorship with the proclamations of free speech. That's five, five years out of date at this point. I mean, the vanguard of the institutional, you know, New York Times, Washington Post op-ed progressive liberalism so I'm not talking about uh, what people are saying in, you know, anarchist bookstores in Spokane, but like the Washington Post op-ed liberal progressives are explicitly opposed to free speech now on the grounds that, as you said, it's uh, it's reactionary and, and, and frankly, you know, kind of explicitly Marcusean terms. The thing that I take from Marcuse or the against the grain reading that I take and you know, frankly, I find Marcuse 
in some ways to be uh, less, for me, less uh, trenchant as a critical theorist than the Horkheimer and Adorno stuff. But what I take from it is that 95% of free speech politics is just positional. Like the right is now celebrating itself as the free speech party. This is not principled. It's no more principled than it was when the left was celebrating itself as the free speech party, which is not to say that uh, that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, if you produce salutary outcomes with your politics, that's enough for me, frankly. But it is revealing of something essential about ideology, which is that ideology is largely positional, uh, relational, not in the first order, a question of immutable, uh, individually held principles, but a, you know, often a kind of uh, group power strategy. And in this case, the right has realized that uh, free speech is, is useful to it uh, and, and important because it finds itself uh, you know, the kind of oppositional party at this point, uh, the right broadly defined, you know, stands outside what is a, essentially a kind of one party administrative state in the US. I think that the kind of Chris Rufo CRT laws are, you know, they are somewhere in between uh, the pro-free speech wing of the right and the explicitly, let's say, authoritarian wing of the right insofar as locally generated opposition to state indoctrination is not the equivalent as much as the left would like it to be for reasons of kind of pat equivalencies. It's not actually the same as the, you know, attempts to, to quash free speech qua free speech, right? There is a distinction between what kind of political discourse adults can engage in with one another in what is supposed to be the public square. For instance, you know, Jeff, could you and I have had a uh, open conversation about the merits of ivermectin um, or hydroxychloroquine or masking uh, a year ago on Twitter or on Facebook? or on Instagram? The answer is no. No, we could not have because there were state-directed uh, state directed rules about what was acceptable speech and what was not that were adopted by these uh, tech platforms. And that to me is qualitatively different than a campaign over what is being taught to school children. There, they, there's overlap, they bleed into each other, but I do think there's a distinction worth maintaining there. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think, you know, it, it, part of me um, has the sense that, um, you know, I, yeah, as you say, I think there is a, a sort of overtly author, authoritarian um, strain of the right that, you know, is, is definitely kind of overtly um, opposed to a kind of free speech absolutism and explicit about that. Um, and that is actually consistent with, you know, right-wing positions that long existed. Um, you know, I think uh, the, I mean, part of what's interesting to me about the school stuff is just that it's, um, you know, it's, I think it, it is partly opportunistic as a sort of, um, it's, it's a, 
it's a battlefield that is is well chosen in a sense because um, there there are sort of possibilities of what can be done on that front as we've seen that um, you know are 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 not going to um, make headway in a broader sense but but also I mean I, I think it 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 sort of relates to you know a, a sort of Marcusean Frankfurt Schoolian question of like you know what what um, I mean this this question of like what are schools teaching. How does it relate to these kind again this kind of full spectrum right, apparatus right. of propaganda and the way that what's um, the function of public education is it to right. inculcate inquiry in a spirit yeah. of open pursuit or is it to indoctrinate children into civic values and the only reasonable answer is that it's obviously got to be, it's always going to be the latter category. Yeah. Hopefully it includes some of the former category kind of has to in a democracy, but, but definitely both. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I think all this is, uh, you know, we could probably keep talking about all this for a while, but I actually wanted to go back in time and, you know, explore some um, areas where some of these questions and ideas, uh, you know, are, are sort of prefigured in earlier intellectual developments, um, particularly in, in a somewhat, um, you know, somewhat marginal and, you know, relatively little known, but also kind of surprisingly influential space, which is that of uh, the journal Telos. So um, Telos is a, um, it, it's largely run outside of academia, although um, its founder, Paul Picone was originally an academic, but then left and but, but a marginal academic. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So he ended up leaving and essentially devoting himself full time to running this journal. It, was it founded in 1968? Is that is that right? Uh, Somewhere around there? Definitely around maybe 66, but right around there. Yeah. So so really again around this same time that Marcuse writes repressive tolerance. Um, you know, at the beginning, um, the, you know, again, founding editor, um, Paul Picone is a sort of, um, I don't know if a disciple, but he's definitely kind of working in the lines of inquiry that people like Marcuse and the other Frankfurt School thinkers um, have initiated. And so this journal becomes a kind of, um, you know, it, it becomes a very sort of heterodox space that you know, draws to itself a lot of thinkers who are, you know, from sort of different parts of the political spectrum. And, it, you know, again, I think it's, uh, I mean, I, I recommend people just go back through old issues of it, because it really, um, I, I think does prefigure a lot of the, the strange ideological developments, particularly of the last five years or so. Um, I think but, it's the best intellectual journal in America, and yeah. the most important intellectual journal in uh in America, maybe the English speaking world of the last yeah. 50 years. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's very, um, again, it, it's somewhat, um, it definitely has academics involved in it, but it's sort of run from outside of academia and has a certain just kind of generally sort of oppositional and dissident quality. Um, oppositional but, and dissident, even including towards its readership. Sometimes right, right, right. <laughs> it does not make concessions, you know, yeah, it yeah. does not pander ever. You will not find any pandering in yeah. Telos. So, I mean, first of all, I think you have sort of both, uh, I mean, it, both a great appreciation for it, but also a personal connection to the journal. So perhaps we can yeah. start there. 
Sure, sure. So Paul Picone uh, was a figure in my home and in my childhood in uh, Brooklyn because my father was an editor at Telos, I believe, through the mid 80s. And he wrote some great pieces for Telos. He wrote a piece on uh, speaking of, you know, kind of prefiguring later movements. He wrote a piece on Archie Bunker and kind of American populism and uh, my father was a guy who had started out at Descent Magazine. He was a writer and a story. And Fred Sue, I don't know why I'm referring to him in the past tense. He's uh, still alive. I'll be seeing him shortly. Um, but he started off at Descent on the left, but was what was at the time, and uh, in a slur that's been revived, what was known as a social fascist. So, you know, he was a kind of uh, pragmatic materialist social democrat of sorts, but one who was very lower middle class, working class in his uh, cultural tastes and uh, social orientation was not not a new left guy by any stretch of the imagination. So he uh, drifted away from dissent at some point, wound up at Telos. I don't know exactly how that happened, but I think through a convergence of, you know, common interests, he was a heterodox guy. Telos was very heterodox and Telos was advancing this sort of post-Marxist left, but deeply iconoclastic, localist, and deeply anti-elite left, you know, in a way that runs parallel to what people might associate with Christopher Lash, for instance. So there was a real deep suspicion of the elites and particularly the consolidation of bureaucratic power as the fount of elite power is, is a theme that starts very early in Telos and is obviously very important. So, so anyway, my father wound up there. He actually ended up leaving in the late 80s, I believe, interestingly enough, in part, I think, because he didn't like when they embraced Carl Schmidt, it turned him off. Um, which is, you know, interesting in light of how Schmidtianism later moved from left to right and the, all the controversies over it, but but never broke with them and, and remained close and all that. But when I was a kid, uh, long story short, you know, Paul, who was this very charismatic guy and grew up, came to the States when he was 15 or 16 from Italy, uh, working class, uh, Italian and then Italian American background, very handy, a kind of all around guy. My my great memory from when I was a kid was that uh, when my folks bought this house, beautiful house in uh, an area of Brooklyn that was then known as Flatbush and is now called Ditmas Park and has these very lovely Victorian houses that they were able to buy at the time in the early eighties because all the middle class families were fleeing the city at the time. Um, Paul came over and our chimney was blocked up. And he climbed up onto the roof, you know, no rig, no ladder, went out a window, climbed up onto the roof and was taking bricks that had fallen into the chimney, uh, plucking them out of the chimney and tossing them down to the ground 50 feet below. So, you know, not your average uh, Marxian editor of an intellectual journal, let us say. Um, and he was uh, and that was my memory of Paul was that and his lovely wife, Mary, who was very sweet, sweet to me for a long time. That was how I thought of Telos. I didn't think anything else. Fast forward 20 years or so, um, I enlisted the army. At one point, I deployed to Iraq. When I got back from Iraq, I had a, a close friend, Roy Scranton, who's now at the University of Notre Dame, is a fellow veteran 
and a great writer. And Roy handed me a slim book called On Pain by Ernst Younger, which really um, was, it flipped my wig at the time. It was a very um, profound experience reading that book. I saw that it had been published by Telos. And then, you know, as an adult, I was in my late 20s at that point. I sort of went back to Telos and rediscovered it that way. So, so that, uh, thank you for indulging me, is my personal connection to Telos. But all that being said, I, what I think is so important about Telos beyond my uh, personal emotional connection to it uh, is that Paul understood all along that the subject was capitalism, right? And he didn't lose sight of that, where what the Frankfurt School had tried to do was to answer the question, why didn't the proletariat become uh, a revolutionary class and usher in communism, as Marx assured us they were going to do? Why instead, as you pointed out, were they not crushed, but co-opted by bourgeois capitalism? Why had that happened? That was the thing that initially turned Paul toward critical theory and toward the Frankfurt School. But because Paul was in ways that someone like Marcuse was not necessarily, because Paul was actually attuned to concentrations of administrative power and was aware of the contradictions, let us say, in the Frankfurt School analysis uh, which ignored the increasing concentrations of power on the bourgeois liberal administrative left because he was still interested in that. He maintained the focus on capitalism, which distinguished him from the right at the time. So you couldn't say, as people tried to make the claim that, oh, Telos went from being left to right, because Telos was always interested in concentrations of capital and administrative power in a way that the right has only very recently become interested in. But what, what Paul recognized, I think, largely was the way that ideology and particularly progressive ideology became useful to capital. And he famously developed a theory of what he called artificial negativity that, that we can get into in more detail if you like. But that's sort of my my brief spiel on what what the character of Telos was. And, and then I'd just say one final thing, Jeff, and I'll, I'll stop after this. But the other important thing about Telos in the context of a conversation that started off about free speech is they really were invested in free speech, even as they interrogated its political purposes, in the sense that they were genuinely heterodox published people who got them in trouble from, you know, Schmidt, not least of all, but also uh, French Nouvelle Droit characters like Alain de Benoit, who would later become, you know, associated in, in uh, the American sort of version of events, at least with the alt-right in America. And, and so, and even Lash, when Lash was a controversial figure because he was an iconoclast and all that. So they were genuinely invested in heterodox thinking while at the same time, able to interrogate in epistemological and uh, kind of social terms, the uses of free speech rhetoric. Yeah, so probably a good segue into this um, concept you just brought up of artificial negativity. 
which is, you know, if, if we wanted to kind of, um, you know, identify sort of key concepts that come out of Picon's work and, and particularly, you know, I mentioned before the, um, the sort of one dimensionality thesis that Marcuse develops in the early sixties, I think one dimensional man is 64. Um, so it's, you know, interestingly, it comes out right at the same moment as like the Berkeley free speech movement is starting to um, come to a head. Um, and so it it's an interesting book because it in some ways already feels as soon as it's out, I mean, on one hand, it's very influential, although I don't know how widely read it actually is, but then it mm-hmm. also immediately comes to feel dated in certain ways because it's, it's, you know, essentially trying to analyze this kind of Eisenhower era consensus of, um, you know, of where, you know, basically the, the business elite and the labor unions and I mean, everything is working in lockstep. You have this seemingly, um, you know, perfectly and totally integrated um, capitalist society that um, has has effectively neutralized all internal opposition, right? And so mm-hmm. Marcuse is in one dimensional man sort of trying to figure out. And then he's also, you know, working within this paradigm that other people were calling like the organization man or whatever, this mm-hmm. you know, critique of sort of conformism and, and the, the way that, you know, the combination of like the workplace and the mass media just kind of hollows out any kind of autonomous individuality. And so he... You know, he he publishes this book. It becomes influential as a a sort of characterization of the society that these young student radicals are starting to articulate their opposition to. But then, of course, you know, the tumult of the '60s follows, and so it its analysis comes to seem rather dated quite quickly. And so, my understanding is at least that you know. Um, Picon develops artificial negativity as a way of kind of trying to, I mean, in some ways sort of update that account, but also to, you know, kind of um, point to its limitations. I mean, the way, the ways that it, it, it didn't and wasn't capable of fully capturing the complexity of how um, this kind of, <clears throat> you know, late capitalist formation had, had succeeded in, um, you know, neutralizing any challenges to it. So he, you know, he, he's definitely, and, and I think quite explicitly, um, you know, revisiting the one dimensionality thesis, but um, then proposing our artificial negativity as a sort of necessary update to it, particularly in light of the events of the late 60s. I don't know if that seems like a fair. Yeah, yeah, I think that's contextualization. Absolutely. And, I, you know, there are other uh, sort of influences you can see that there's clear influences of Marx's, Marx's later writing in particular, uh, the culture industry, all of that. But yeah, I think The One Dimensional Man is a, a big part of it. I also think that it's a uh, of a piece in a sense with, you know, Burnham's work on the managerial class and of this attempt to up to a broader attempt that is disparate. You know, there's not that many people engaged in it at the time. Burnham is an obvious one. Um, I forget what his initials are. Mills, the sociologist with his power elite stuff. There's a group of C. Wright Mills. Yeah. C. Wright Mills, right. Um, There's an attempt to understand why uh, essentially the, the ways structurally that the bureaucratic structure of capitalism in particular tends towards totalization, precluding genuine opposition. Right. So it's not just a, a cultural phenomenon. It's a 
specifically an account of the ways that a totalizing bureaucratic structure um, tends towards towards that. And the interesting turn also is that rather than just as some other theorists had already done, uh, analyzing the way in which capitalism, liberal bourgeois capitalism in particular, neutralizes opposition, what Pacone is saying, along with Tim Lukes and other uh, Telos writer who also develops the theory, you know, where they're going with this is that it's like the matrix, you know, it's like, no, capitalism needs this in the same way, um, you know, I'm sorry to be the 10 millionth person to do a, a matrix analogy, at least it's not Harry Potter, I guess, but um, in the same way that the matrix needs to generate, what is the matrix needs to generate? What is it? Neos or um, you know what I'm getting at? The matrix needs yeah. to generate uh, disturbances to exactly. its yeah. to its equilibrium in order to preserve the sense of reality. Capitalism needs these artificial negativities in order to enact the processes in a kind of symbolic way that maybe parallels um, aspects of Girard to enact uh, a kind of conflict resolu resolution while at the same time neutralizing genuine threats. Right. Yeah. And so it's um, this, I mean, you know, it, it comes out of this kind of Marxian notion that, you know, the, the sort of historical process generates these contradictions. Right. And then the sort of, you know, the risk to capitalism in the sort of more orthodox Marxian accounts is that, you know, it ultimately generates this, this kind of ultimate contradiction in the form of the proletariat, which, which then sort of negates it and sort of overcomes it. Right. And so um, essentially what, you know, and I think there he, um, that, you know, Picone and Luca at this point, you know, as they're developing it, I think they're kind of looking back on the 60s, you know, student mm -hmm. revolts and um, and related uh, developments and thinking about how they actually, you know, did not fundamentally challenge the system and in some ways allowed it to kind of reconsolidate itself, right? And that became this, the system. You know, so this process did involve this system. apparent negation, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. But then, but then the the actual function of it objectively, and you know, this isn't conspiratorial. It's not that you know, there's some um, centralized agency that's you know creating these these sort of you know false flags or whatever. Um, but but rather that you know, this is this is an emergent process by which um, the evolution of of capitalism. Um, you know, re requires these, uh, the production of these negativities that then kind of push it along to the next uh, phase in some sense. Right, right. I think that's a crucial, crucial insight and a crucial corrective to the deterministic tendencies on both the left and the right to always associate capital with their own political opposition, because it's genuinely dialectical in the sense that it, it, capitalism evolves, and as it evolves, uh, as it evolves, different ideological, cultural epiphenomenon become useful to it at different times. And so on the right, you have this reading back, this just so reading back into history that's going on at the moment where capital was always woke, essentially. You know, maybe there was some some golden age, but there's this sort of reading back that that assumes 
you know, um, that uh, essentially from progressivism on, let's say from the late 19th century on, you know, and well, I forget what is Nick Land's lines, Thulu always swims left, that essentially it's been a uh, unstoppable march to the left and Yarvin takes this up. And I think that idea has been very influential. And of course, precisely the opposite idea had held with equal conviction on the left for a long time, which was the the institutions of the government, the CEOs, the corporate class were always an irrevocably uh, conservative and right-leaning in their orientation, right? So both sides see it this way. and, and because both have been true at different historical stages, both can find evidence to support their essentially uh, false and jerry-rigged thesis. In fact, I think the more useful, honest way to look at it is, to come back to an earlier point, it evolves, it's positional, it's relational. There are There is one ideology that is useful to the power structure at one point in time. And for reasons that are not purely deterministic and that have to do with who emerges as the victor and various forms of inter-elite competition that have to do with technological changes, changes in telecommunications, et cetera, this changes over time. And as it changes, um, you know, a, a different kind of ideological gloss can emerge as as the mandate of heaven ideological gloss. As it were, it doesn't mean it always was and it doesn't mean that it always will be. And, and, you know, artificial negativity, because it's rooted in, I think, the opposition to totalizing systems, is better able to understand that relational aspect than um, people who are, who are more preoccupied with their um, with why why the system is against them at that given point in time, rather than with the underlying mechanics of the system. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know one, one thing that's interesting, as I said, that you know, going back through the Telos archives, really, you know, you just find all of these. I mean, nothing of the past sort of five or ten years seems particularly new anymore. It's all it's kind of all so true. All yeah. been prefigured there in some way. Um, but and you know, one point about this artificial negativity thesis is, you know, I think you know, for people of of sort of you know, who came up in the like 90s and 2000s, you know, there was there was kind of a, ver- a version of this that, you know, emerges kind of partly spontaneously. And then, you know, you think of people like, I don't know, Mark Fisher kind of capturing one version of it where, you know, basically this idea that, you know, I mean, and, and Fisher's account essentially is that, well, it's really just in the 90s that all of these kind of um, oppositional cultural forces are fully co-opted by capital and and you know he um talks about you know kurt cobain in this way and so on but you know the, this seems very um you know it, it it really is is far too uh it, i mean it, it locates the development um far too recently like i think <laughs> the, the if you go back to picon's and and luke's writing on the subjects you know they're they're kind of already coming to similar insights by the early seventies. Um, so, you know, I think um, it's, and it's interesting to me that in a way this, this concept and, and this, um, this analysis was, you know, largely forgotten or not, you know, people of sort of say Fisher's generation 
weren't particularly aware of it because it, it really did prefigure almost everything they were trying to say. And I would say in some ways said it better and sort of more, I, I totally more agree. comprehensively. I, think, so. I agree. And with less, um, look, it said it better because it said it more rigorously, but it was less accessible. And, you know, Fisher could be kind of fun to read. Um, I'm a great admirer of Pocones. He's not especially fun to read, nor is he trying to be. You know, um, but I think that the really interesting through line here to skip ahead for a moment and then go back, you know, part of the I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the impetus for this conversation was an attempt to understand and analyze how it had come to be the critical theory, this epistemological method and orientation associated with the left has been taken up by the right over the last decade. That's something you've written about, something I've written about that we're both clearly interested in. And one meta theory I would propose is that um, it always belongs to the disenchanted class. So it's critical theory is always a response to a disenchantment. So in the first place, in the original Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt with the original Frankfurt school theorists, they are, this is the interwar period, they start off, there's the early disenchantment with the failures of communism, right? And then there's the later disenchantment with the excesses of the Soviet Union, excesses being obviously a, a very kind of benign euphemism. Um, and, and it but both are genuine disenchantments and critical theory is an attempt to an attempt by a group that feels itself betrayed by power to understand the nature of the power that betrayed it. Um, and so you have that with the Frankfurt School theorists. Then you have something similar with Pacone, who feels, you know, he feels betrayed by the Frankfurt School on some level and by their faith in the new left. Fisher then feels betrayed by, uh, I, you know, I haven't read that much Fisher, but as I understand it, with the kind of afterlife of the new left in the idea of youth subcultures and all that and kind of uh, commodity individualism. And then finally, you have the right and the rights version of critical theory, particularly the recent rights version of critical theory and, you know, so, uh, uh, the kind of precursor people on the right, like Paul Gottfried, are a little bit different because they saw this coming a lot earlier and were explicitly dealing with capitalism, whereas the right-wing critical theory of the last 10 years is largely cultural and not as much of it has been, I, I don't think, invested in capitalism in a serious way. But but it's also a disenchantment because it's an attempt to understand, you know, like, I thought we were what the left said we were. I thought we were in charge of everything. Like the left said we were in charge. Like we're the we're the white male CEOs. We're supposed to, we're the patriarchs. Um, this was our country. That's what they are saying. We thought it was true. Also, we thought the corporations were on our side. We thought that the, you know, we knew that like uh, the crazy Marxist professors were against us or whatever, but certainly we thought the FBI was on our side. Jagger Hoover's FBI. We thought that the generals were on our side. Now they're talking about white privilege. And so the right is in a, a very similar way. There's a genuine, deep continuity. The right is experiencing its own disenchantment. And critical theory is the 
epistemological manifestation of that disenchantment. And it moves from left to right, depending on who's being disenchanted, but it's, it doesn't necessarily belong to either, I would argue. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really um, a good way of thinking about it. And in a way, the, you know, the trajectory of, of Telos is itself a kind of, I, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's worth going into the way that Picone again, kind of comes out of, I mean, it, 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 it appears as a journal kind of at the high point of the new left. Um, then it kind of goes through this reckoning with the, the failures of the new left and, and this kind of um, attempt to theorize and make sense of those. And then at a later point, you know, I'd say that his kind of disenchantment or disillusionment, you know, becomes more pronounced or at least at a certain point in the seventies. And this is, you know, the point at which he starts, um, and again, he's on one hand theorized this artificial negativity as these these kind of um, negations that the system produces, kind of in order to reconsolidate itself in some sense, mm-hmm. and then he counterposes that to a notion of organic negativity, right? Mm-hmm. And so, organic negativity would be a kind of more spontaneous obstacle that this kind of um, you know, process of total integration faces, as I understand it. Um, I think both spontaneous and local is the right, key local, point yeah. here. Yeah. Not totalizing. And so he has a sort of, um, and, you know, as part of this line of thinking, and this is where I think things get interesting and also anticipate more recent developments, you know, and, and I think, you know, one one thing that if, if you go through the Telos archives, you find is that, um, this notion that, you know, this whole interest in populism as something that feels still kind of new and recent, right, that I think most of us think of populism as this kind of phenomenon of the past five to 10 years. Um, but, you know, they're all writing, you know, extensively about populism um, going back to the at least the 80s and, yeah. you know, have... Yeah have numerous, um, you know, forums and articles. And, and and this is the point at which also Picone sort of starts being um, at least, you know, somewhat sympathetic to, you know, what we would think of as right populism in, in Europe, right? And particularly these kind of local, these kind of localistic forms of it, such as the uh, Lega Nord in Italy, right? And, yeah, yeah, which, um, you know, the Lega Nord, which... Was not always, you know, was sometimes genuinely far right as opposed to right wing populist. But yeah, but but uh, Paul is definitely into. Yeah, so you know they they become very interested in the. I mean, on one hand, I think they're, um, you know, from the pieces that I've read, they're sort of conscious. I mean, they they seem to be very conscious of the the various Telos writers who are engaging with this. I mean, they seem very conscious both of the limitations of it as well as. The ways that populism is is a kind of floating signifier that can come to mean yeah. almost anything. So, I mean, there's an article I came across from like the early not from I think after Clinton was elected, but it you know it sort of points out that you know basically everybody is a populist now, right? So, you know, Clinton is kind of um, or at least everybody claims to be or presents themselves as a populist. So, Clinton can be a populist. Reagan can be a populist. I may have it, but you know it's. Um, I can probably dig it up, but so, you know, on one hand, he's kind of, um, attuned to the, the interest of these, um, these groups that, that seem to represent a sort of genuine obstacle to the sort of smooth functioning of the system. Right. And I think we can, we see that 
you know, act recent years, right? Um, you know, it's it's clear that despite his sort of, <laughs> you know, the 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 ways in which his political projects proved um, quite sort of, I mean, both you know, weakly executed and surprisingly conventional, at least on the level of kind of signifiers, you know, Trump clearly posed, uh, you know. I mean, was a huge wrench in the works, right? Um, but uh, although in some ways he was a he was an opportunity for the the system to um, reconsolidate itself, right? So we can, but but just the the sheer um, the sheer panic and terror that he provoked, you know, suggested a kind of uh, a kind of shock to the the functioning of the system that you know many of us wouldn't have been able to imagine previously. So. And you know, revealed think, the contours of that system in a way that we might not have anticipated. Absolutely. Insofar as like it was a, it appeared to be equally threatening to elements on Wall Street and yeah. to liberal academics yeah. and to uh, Pentagon, bra- you know, top brass, the Pentagon in a way that I think very few people had had fully understood prior to that. Yeah. And so it, you know, it, it, by putting up this, this obstacle, even, even if it was largely a kind of, um, you know, even though I think it's, you know, his his ability to actually um, produce any, any genuine threat to the functioning of the sort of administrative state was, you know, proved quite weak. Um, And nevertheless, again, on the kind of symbolic or semiotic level, it, it created a, an immense crisis, right? That, that as you say, um, I think, you know, revealed the sort of total integration of the system in a way that um, it, it might have been much harder or was much harder to see, let's say, five years earlier. So, you know, I think this is kind of the, the type of thing that uh, I think Picon and his colleagues are starting to, to look for, just any of these kind of emergent political forces that in some ways kind of jam up the gears um, and, and create these, you know, produce these kind of crises. Um, And so, you know, this attracts him to these kind of European. So on one hand, he's, it seems to me, he's kind of conscious of the way that populism itself can just become a style. Right. And so, you know, whether you're Bill Clinton or Tony Blair or whoever, you can kind of, um, embrace a kind of stylistic populism that that is denuded of any of its um, any of its sort of more threatening potential. But um, but at the same time, he's kind of interested in these these movements that are starting to emerge that that sort of, um, you know, pose some kind of threat to the the way the system functions. I think that the key aspect, I I think localism is is key to this, um, because essentially any movement, and this is an early insight embedded in the idea of artificial negativity and, in, and that emerges from the disappointments of the new left, any movement that uh, attempts to form itself bureaucratically simply becomes part of the bureaucracy. So any movement that attempts to avail itself of the bureaucratic apparatus as the vehicle of its resistance uh, not only is subsumed into the bureaucracy, but potentially strengthens the bureaucracy by inoculating it against that particular threat. Um, and so a movement like the Leg Nord is important, and I'm no expert on the Leg Nord, and so I don't want don't to overstep what I know here, but I, my understanding of its importance to Paul is that it's a genuinely regional movement, um, particularly at its origins, 
and is fighting for a kind of regionalism that is therefore explicitly uh, constitutively anti-hegemonic. It's not attempting to insert itself into the hegemon and to, you know, to problematize the hegemon, to use a, a dumb phrase. Um, it's attempting to break off in a way and to establish a new set of rules. And we didn't get into this, but the other part of this that's important and that relates directly to the early critiques of the Frankfurt School and to, I guess, Horkheimer and Adorno in particular is, you know, there is an opposition to totalizing rationalism in uh, Pocone's thinking and in Pocone's political formulations. And maybe this is implicit in the critique of bureaucracy, but part of the critique of bureaucracy is that the that that essentially post-enlightenment rationalism is itself totalizing and so tends towards bureaucratic forms of of uh, totalizing systems. Um, the, the book that Paul Gottfried, who I mentioned earlier, who, just to give people a quick synopsis, Gottfried was a Gottfried coined the term paleoconservative, and he also, along with his uh, disciple at the time, Richard Spencer, um, helped coin the term alternative right when that was still associated with uh, what was essentially the kind of afterlife of the Buchan- Pat Buchanan-centric paleoconservative circle that hadn't gone you know, full neo-fascist white nationalist at that point. Um, and, you know, he's a speechwriter for Patrick Buchanan. He's an historian. He's a very influential guy in a lot of ways, um, a crank, but also very smart. And I wrote a profile of him for Tablet some years ago. And he was also, I should mention, at Yale, uh, a student of Marcuse's for one semester. And it's funny in this piece that I wrote, I wrote a long profile of Gottfried that detailed his sort of role in helping to create the intellectual foundations of the alt-right that, you know, some people accuse me of being too sympathetic to him. It was a piece that was divisive at the time. The funny thing is the most controversial part of that piece was me saying that he was a student of Marcuse's and like people were, that got 50 letters. It couldn't be right. Marcuse was a Brandeis at the time. No, trust me. I looked it up. He taught a class at Yale. Godfrey took his class at Yale. Um, but uh, anyway, Gottfried was also on the editorial board at Telos for some years. I don't know exactly how many years he was there, um, but he was at Telos and he was part of this sort of attempt to envision um, what even by the early 80s, I believe, or by the mid 80s, I should say, was already starting to be called post-liberalism at times, you know, a, a term that's become popular recently, but that has older Origins, and I think what Godfrey's best book is a book called After Liberalism, and in this book After Liberalism, which is essentially an historical account of how the progressive managerial state swallowed liberalism, and in so doing, changed the definition of what liberalism is. So essentially, what he's showing is that the 19th century idea of liberalism, which had to do you know, especially in the Manchester variety, very explicitly with private property rights um, 
and had very little to do at the time. And Gottfried's telling, and he, he leans too hard on this, but there's certainly some truth to it, had very little to do at the time with, you know, um, an expanding protection for uh, minority rights or, or with a kind of progressive uh, uh, mission, uh, you know, that would come later and that, that was actually progressivism. Um, so anyway, so he writes this book. And what's interesting about it in part is that, you know, already at the time, he's identifying also the limitations of populism and identifying the way that populism is useful to everybody. And I forget what year the book is written. I have it here somewhere and I can look it up. But, you know, what he's pointing out at the time is that like already, you know, the welfare state is already popular with conservatives, right? Like so that the idea that you're going to overthrow the administrative state is just divorced from the reality. Copyright 1999. Um, it's written later than I thought, actually. But what he's showing is that, you know, in part, like statism is already bipartisan. Yeah, the, the Republicans can rail about the welfare state, but all they really mean is we don't want welfare for poor people and, you know, definitely not for like poor black welfare moms, but they're not. They're not against the managerial state, right? And the the managerial state uh, is becomes part of populism. It's the managerial state on, on whose behalf. But for Pacone, that ultimately perpetuates the bureaucratic totalizing system that he opposes. So a populism that uses the kind of gestures of anti-elitism and of national solidarity uh, or, or common good stuff, et cetera, but that preserves the totalizing, rationalizing bureaucratic structure that precludes the possibility of genuine uh, local communal relations is just another version of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad we moved, sort of moved over to Gottfried, who I did want to ask you about. Um, so he's, you know, a, a, another interesting figure in this, you know, in this whole sequence, as you've been explaining. He, um, he, I mean, he comes up as a conservative, right? He's, he's never, he's not somebody who sort of leaves the left. He's, he's basically on the right um, throughout, but he yeah. does, you know, he does learn, seemingly learn something from, you know, Marcuse and the Frankfurt School, and that that sort of informs his his analyses, like the one you just um, explained. So, um, so he's, you know, and and I mean, I actually before this conversation, one thing I dug up was he has a memoir of Picone that I guess was published after Picone's death. Um, that you know was published in Telos. Um, that, you don't mean encounters, do you? Is this different from encounters? No, no. I, I he just has a short essay on his relationship with uh, Picot. Okay, that's in, a chapter in, also in his uh, okay. memoir, Encounters. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know, it's interesting because he he describes when he first, I guess when he first meets Picot, it's you know Picot still sort of identifies as on the left, um, but you know the way he sort of describes it is we sort. So I'm, I, I've got this open now, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting little text just about how he, you know, he, he comes at it from, on one hand, I think having always been on the right, but having sort of learned certain things from thinkers of the left, but then, you know, he, he finds, a, you know, in, in this kind of Telos crowd, a, 
um, a, a number of people who seem to have independently arrived at similar analyses to him. And then, you know, it, it seems that once he, you know, joins their editorial board, they are sort of working in concert, although not necessarily um, seeing themselves as working towards the same ends. But, you know, he's, um, so Gottfried is a, um, is he actually born in the U.S. or is he um, born? Yeah, he was in, born in okay. born in Brooklyn. But yep. his um, but his so his parents are are Jewish immigrants from Hungary. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, I think his father was yeah. a furrier. So he, uh, yeah. But they're sort of not. You know, he, he's not somebody who's in some kind of um, I don't know, radicalized like um, you know, working class immigrant community. His parents are no, no, more, the opposite of right? it. Uh, yeah, I think they're middle yeah. class. I don't think that they're particularly well off, but okay. what there's a memorable account of his father in his book, who is clearly a formative influence on him. And his father is a kind of central European conservative of that era. And you get some of the sense of the kind of what's known as the, the Ostjuden, right, which is the Germanic Jew who you know, understands themselves as part of this Teutonic culture, looks down on the, uh, you know, the the Jews of the Russian Empire who are um, peasants and who don't belong to a high, you know, the same way Germans look down on Slavs, the German Jews, Hannah Arendt being the most famous example, had a kind of snobbishness um, towards Eastern European Jews. So he was a, his father was a kind of, uh, old world Central European conservative who, you know, never believed in uh, the, the progressive march of minority rights or, or anything like that. And it's it's important not only for the ways in which it shapes Godfrey personally in the sense that he's never a leftist of any sort and is always sort of a conservative, but, you know, I think it, it's also this interesting connection to what in America, in Godfrey's circles on the right, becomes known as the old right, referring to the pre-war right. Because, you know, there's this idea that develops among paleoconservatives and among sort of uh, conservatives outside of the establishment that conservatism, Inc., as they call it, the Republican Party, is just another branch of liberalism. It's just another branch of the progressive ruling class. And the real, the genuine conservative movement essentially only exists in the old pre-war Right. Um, and Gottfried has this kind of personal connection to that. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's interesting that he and so he and Picone both come from these immigrant backgrounds. Picone is more I mean, I mean, is from a sort of working class Italian immigrant background. Um, and they um, yeah. So I found this passage, which is kind of interesting. It, what it, it describes when they first meet. Um, and I, I think it's that um, Gottfried is working for some other publication where they've solicited a piece from Picone, and that's how they begin to talk. And it says, um, you know, at this point, Paul characterized himself as a Marxist who is really on the left. This amazed me, I explained, since I considered myself an, a member of the American old right, but held the same views he did. How is it, I ask, that you and I can agree on so much while claiming to be on opposite political sides? Paul responded to me because you're a Marxist, but you don't know it. So. That's great. Yeah, I totally forgot yeah. that, but that's great. But if you dig in, like, how would you understand? I think I have my own answer, but I'm curious how you understand it. What 
what I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that Paul is being sort of tongue in cheek and Godfrey very obviously is not a Marxist. But then what was the what is the essential affinity between them? You know, I, I, I mean, kind of going back to points we've made before, it seems like there, there are sort of two ways of coming at this um, insight about, you know, again, this kind of sp- full spectrum nature of domination um, and the way that the, the, I mean, so, you know, if, if you're, uh, if you're coming at it from the sort of Marxist and sort of particularly Western Marxist angle of, you know, on one hand, you've sort of given up the, the original sort of dream of revolution and you see the Soviet Union as a, a sort of um, deviant, you know, disastrous experiment, you know, you're, you're sort of trying to understand again, why, you know, these, why this analysis that you, you still continue to find compelling from Marx did not lead to the, um, the sort of um, historical progression that he predicted and, and led, led to expect. So, you know, this essentially leads to this, um, this analysis of, and, you know, I think the other point is that much of this comes out of the sort of post-war period where clearly you're confronting a different kind of power than existed in Marx's time. Although that, you know, that's something Marxists still debate, right? But, um, but I think I'm more sympathetic to, to that view that you, you, you sort of have to, um, to revise your understanding of, of the way the power is being exercised, that it's it's being exercised in a more uh, a sort of less direct and more diffuse way, that it's it's distributed across um, you know di- different kinds of um, you know different kinds of apparatuses that you know kind of reinforce and and reconsolidate um, power in, in in different ways, um, and so you so you end up with you know a variety of analyses that that essentially um, try to make sense of of those forms of domination and, and the ways that they that they operate, right? And so that's that's essentially what Picone is coming out of. Um, now I I'm curious, um, you know, I, I, you brought up Burnham before, right? But Basically, Burnham is himself an ex-Marxist, right? So he, right, Trotskyist, yeah. And, and I mean, actually, my my most recent episode, I uh, discussed Burnham pretty extensively with Michael Cuenco. But um, you know, basically, Burnham is right is is not only a Trotskyist, but a sort of Trotsky's um, right hand man in the U.S. Right. right? And and um, then you know, through various. Um, developments he you know again experiences this kind of disenchantment right and then kind of in this in the in between period where he's not entirely he hasn't entirely gone over to the sort of i mean the national review doesn't exist at this point but you know later he becomes a kind of mainstay of the national review sort of fusionist right but in this kind of middle period basically he i, I mean a few things happen one is that he discovers these italian elite theory figures right yeah yeah and so he he writes this book about them and then he also writes um the managerial revolution where you know again i i think in a in a way that is you know at this point he's sort of ceased to be a marxist in his fundamental sort of assumptions and framework um but you know he's sort of in a parallel way to what the frankfurt school is doing trying to figure out what are these new forms that you know, in which power is being exercised and what are these new uh, modes of domination that are coming about, right? And so his his answer is this kind of theory of the managerial state, which 
comes more out of this Italian elite theory model where, you know, instead of it being a, a sort of historical contestation between, you know, capital between, you know, bourgeois and proletarian, it's, it's instead a kind of understanding of history as a sequence of kind of elite revolutions, right, where, right. you know, where um, some emergent, you know, revolutions happen when some emergent elite appears and kind of displaces the previous ruling elite. Right. And so he, he argues that this is happening um, across, you know, both in this in the Soviet Union, in Nazi Germany and in the West. Right. And in the, you know, the U.S. and Britain and that they all basically have the same um, have undergone the same process by which a, a managerial elite of of profession of basically professionals um, of sort of bureaucrats has um, become the ruling class, right? And has, has sort of come to exercise primary power and, and sort of displaced the, the previous ruling elite. And so, you know, I think this becomes a kind of, um, you know, so it, it seems like it develops in parallel to the, the Western Marxist elite and interestingly comes out of this kind of disillusion, this figure, you know, Burnham, who's, who's a kind of disenchanted Marxist, but, you know, it, it does um, essentially try to answer the same question. And it, it but instead, you know, I, I think the thing that it does that's perhaps different is and, and this isn't necessarily, you know, Burnham in the managerial revolution, but, you know, it eventually becomes attuned to, you know, where are these um, where are these spaces, these kind of cultural and social spaces that are not yet dominated by the managerial elite and how can those be cultivated and turned into a kind of insurgency? Right. I don't know if you agree, but I mean, that's, that's what I would say is kind yeah. of the, you know, ends up becoming the kind of Buchananite proposition, right? How do you, yeah. how do you kind of galvanize these, um, these sort of relatively marginal the um, middle American spaces, radicals, right. That, that are not, you know, that are still not kind of completely under the thumb of, this sort of, you know, dominant professional class and can be sort of galvanized to oppose it. And in the name of what? Well, in this case, in the name of essentially reasserting a kind of, you know, more localized autonomy. Um, and I, I suppose, um, you know, and this is again, where I think there's the convergence with Picone, right? Because the only kind of spaces of organic negativity he sees are these kind of local ones. Yeah, so is that um, I I have a very similar understanding of it. I, I think, uh, you know, what's interesting is that Marx provides the right in part through these dual figures like Burnham, who's a kind of right wing Trotskyist. Marx provides the right with a materialist analysis that it requires to understand the world. And that it continues to ignore, you know, for most of the right continues to ignore it for most of the time. But that is essential and is only unimportant when you're the one in power and you don't care about critical theories analyzing power. Because if you think about this as being, you know, there's the material object level of reality and then there's the meta level of reality, when you have power you're not interested in interrogating the foundations of that power. The purpose of ideology for the current, you know, liberal progressive ruling class is to generate novel identity, novel forms of recreational identity. 
right? That's what ideology does. Now, in terms of how it's applied and, and those novel forms of identity can have political uses insofar as they justify the expansion of the regulatory apparatus, but that's not uh, you know, they're, they're not interested in interrogating the foundations of power because what ideology actually is, is a justification for power. Um, that's, you know, it's th- the difference between a political philosophy and an ideology, to my understanding, is a political philosophy attempts to explain something and an ideology attempts to justify something. And the thing it attempts to justify is specifically a, a system of power. Um, and so the, the right gets that in the form of the managerial class stuff. And then Telos develops its own version of that in the form of what it calls the new class. So Burnham calls it the managerial class. Telos then calls it the new class, which is a kind of a bit of an update on the idea of the managerial class. Um, but that materialist grounding, that grounding in a kind of understanding of class conflict as a primary driver of history, I think is influential with a, someone like Gottfried, who is attempting to understand why it is that despite what appear to be cultural advantages, let's say, or even what appear to be uh, uh, advantages of wealth, what he considers his own uh, party is, is out of power. And where they converge also is on, to put it bluntly, where they converge is on opposition to the managerial class. So it's, um, that is something that they all oppose, perhaps for different reasons initially. But I think over time, those reasons end up becoming, you know, as they wrap more wraps around the same axle, the closer they get to each other, um, but yeah, I, I think that that, that really um, kind of explains it. I mean, with the right, almost like, you know, Gottfried is this early figure and a kind of forerunner, but I think we talked about Tucker Carlson when you were on uh, my podcast and the ways in which, you know, Carlson is now this like relentless critiquer of the regime who's also interested in outsider probably you know ufos or whatever some of which no doubt he's genuinely interested in but some of which you gather is just his way of like sticking a spoke in the wheel of the kind of smooth running of the rationalist bureaucratic state you know like well what if there are ufos you know it's like then it all sort of comes apart um if that's true, the the migration from an early guy like Gottfried to, to a kind of popularizer of this epistemological skepticism and this like permanent state of critique, um, like Carlson, like that, that process that takes it from the one to the other is the, the recognition both of, a, you know, a kind of materialist analysis that the right ends up applying on the one hand and a recognition on the other hand that its cultural positions end up just getting assumed into the, like it's culture war stuff, even when it's a victory, still ends up only kind of reinforcing the bureaucratic hegemony. Even when it wins something, it's granted that wins. Now the right sees it. Um, it's sort of, it's, 
those victories are like a peace offering, um, something along those lines. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, it, you know, it kind of brings us back to this question of artificial negativity. Um, you know, and I, I was sort of, you know, perhaps to wrap up, I was sort of curious to get your thoughts on this um, vanity fair piece about, you know, the, the, um, the figures of the new right in sort of, um, you know, on one hand, this kind of JD Vance and uh, Blake Masters Senate runs, which I don't know what your take is. I mean, my sense is that would be <laughs> perhaps a, perhaps a good example of a kind of artificial negativity. Um, and then on the other hand, these kind of, um, you know, perhaps less clearly definable cultural formations that you've also written about these, these kind of countercultural currents on the right. And also the ways that, you know, that, that, that essentially countercultural cachet that, that, that the left has kind of, you know, and, and again, this is this is part of this long development that I think Gottfried is, I mean, that, sorry, Picon is uh, very aware of by the early 70s, by which, you know, this sort of counterculture essentially becomes the new um, carrier of, of power, right? And the, and the new kind of primary um, locus of kind of uh, propaganda for the regime. And so, you know, it, it takes a while for everyone to catch up with this, I suppose. But, you know, one seeming result in recent years is that there's a kind of countercultural energy and and kind of allure that's attached itself to certain um, elements of the right. And, you know, this is on one hand, maybe a very online phenomenon that I'm not sure how much the normies are are aware of. But, you know, I've seen it personally in the sense of like, you know, I mean, that film festival that there was that other piece about yeah. recently like i went to that um you know so i've seen i've seen this kind of stuff cropping up at least you know the way that it's it's finding an irl manifestation in certain kind of you know downtown manhattan spaces and so on but you know it's it, it really is part of the same development right Absolutely, but, but then yeah. you know I, I think one of the reactions to the vanity fair piece was like well you know, this article is like retweeted by Jeff Bezos. <laughs> so clearly. Oh, was it really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was like a, <clears throat> I think maybe it was like Glenn Greenwald posted it and said, you know, it's, it's interesting how, you know, um, you know, Vanity Fair is able to publish something like this that isn't just sort of denunciatory and um, is, is sort of, um, if not sympathetic, at least, you know, allows these people to curious. say what they think yeah. and, and is, is just kind of genuinely curious about them. And so I think Glenn Greenwald posted this and then Jeff Bezos retweeted the the Greenwald tweet that said and said, like, yes, very interesting read. Thanks for sharing or something like that. So that's that's you know, awesome. So, so this but this starts, you know, if we're thinking about this notion of artificial negativity, and and definitely I saw a lot of reaction to people uh, um, from people you know, in these kind of very online spaces saying, you know, well, how, how serious of a sort of radical opposition is this if, you know, Jeff Bezos can read this and just find it all very interesting. <laughs> but, um, and so, you know, I think it, it kind of returns us right to this sort of artificial negativity question. Like, and I, I do think, you know, to my mind, there is a difference between, I mean, I, you know, I've also been like a long time uh, Peter Thiel observer, as you probably know. Um, so I have plenty of thoughts about his place in all of this. But 
you know, it's it it does seem to me very clear that there's a there's a categorical difference between what's being described there, particularly on the political level, and you know what we saw around 2016, where I think in 2016 there was a genuinely kind of bizarre and spontaneous set of developments that um, people genuinely didn't anticipate, and that I don't think even the you know the, that the people around the Trump campaign themselves didn't really anticipate, and so. You know, whereas this does seem like a much slicker operation, let's say, um, and it does seem to be, um, I mean, it, it's its also these guys, you know, I mean, obviously we, you know, we all know about Vance's background, but, you know, he and Masters are both these kind of elite educated, got, you know, kind of intellectuals. Um, and in that sense, it's kind of interesting to compare them to the previous insurgent or even current insurgents within the Republican party, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, right. Who is this kind of, I mean, I would say a, you know, a a sort of organic negativity. I mean, these people are, you know, she, she's basically a kind of provincial petite bourgeois kind of person, right. Whose ideological leanings are, you know, do not come out of any kind of elite, you know, educational formation. Right. And you know, if if you compare those kind of Republican insurgents to this, um, you know, th- these guys who can kind of be featured in this glossy magazine, um, like long form article, <clears throat> you know, and, and sort of, um, you know, essentially can be uh, the kind of interlocutors that a sort of mainstream elite reporter would want to have, um, you know, that's so, so there's something interesting about that kind of negativity, right? If if these guys yeah, are yeah, are supposedly the vanguard of this new right, like it's curious that the Republican Party has never been short of people who are these kind of um, seemingly extreme outlier insurgent figures, but most of them have had more of this kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene um, uh, profile, right? Of of basically again being a kind of provincial petit bourgeois person with you know, without an elite education, whose whose views are genuinely sort of not something you would find you you would find any respectable version of, right? That that, that yeah. there would be yeah. a, a sort of academic book published about. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of you know it it, yeah, it struck yeah. me that it's it's curious that this new right it, you know is is presenting itself as this insurgency within the Republican Party. Well, it you know, depends it, on what you. Uh, it depends on the 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 terms uh, of the analysis in the sense that, yeah, to, to look at this as an insurgency would be kind of absurd on its face. But to look at this as a counter elite, which is how I understand it, um, it's not only not absurd, it's, in my opinion, far more serious as a political formation than the organic populism yeah. of a Marjorie mm-hmm. Taylor Greene. So, when I look at somebody like Blake Masters, for instance, right? And, you know, I think Masters and Vance are similar, but Vance is probably uh, maybe more of an intellectual, but Masters is, uh, it seems to me, Masters is a better, um, more effective sort of, uh, not popularizer is the wrong word, but he's like, he's good at memeing, I think. And not in, I don't mean that in a like, cutesy, trivial, like AOC tweets way. I mean, you see masters, you know, taking Curtis Yarvin, taking Samuel Francis, using their ideas, using their phrases, 
very directly in a way that he knows communicates to a certain audience, but resonates with a much broader audience because you don't need to know the provenance of the idea of anarcho tyranny, right? Which comes from Samuel Francis, who is this friend of Paul Gottfried's, who was at one time a paleoconservative figure who became a kind of uh, and, and was a Burnham disciple who became a explicit white nationalist racialist who saw anti-managerialism and white nationalism as being a single cause, essentially. Right. And who popularized this idea also actually came up with uh, middle, Ameri- middle American radical, which was this Buchananite phrase comes from Francis as well, I believe, uh, from an article in Chronicles. But uh, Masters uses that stuff effectively and uses those ideas in a way that's resonant. And obviously, he is backed by Teal in a way that makes him institutionally serious. What all of this is threatening what are, or suggesting or promising, depending on how you see it, is that rather than having a singular, inimitable chaos emperor like Donald Trump, who is as much a man with the head of a lion and, uh, you know, and and constitution of a donkey as he is like a human politician who's just legitimately, genuinely a bizarre historical anomaly in a lot of ways um, and who energized people precisely for that reason and was able to kind of break through the walls initially precisely for that reason, but who ultimately, as you pointed out, proved to be quite impotent in a number of ways, though I think he he scored some points elsewhere, but was quite impotent in a number of ways because he was immediately neutralized by the administrative structures, which controlled like virtually every other office outside the White House, and which from the moment he entered the office set about colluding against him openly, dramatically, in the most lurid, conspiratorial, disinformatory ways. I'm speaking of Russiagate, obviously, but I'm also speaking of a more general uh, coup against the president, which was, you know, I had um, had my own criticisms of Trump, of course, but it never occurred to me that those criticisms would countenance uh, the security state and the Washington Post and the New York Times colluding with senators to frame him. Um, it didn't. It didn't occur to me that those same people, in the course of framing the president and tying him up for four years, could also claim to be uh, anti-fascist stalwarts who were who were under the boot of tyranny. That seemed um, far fetched, you know. I would say, but for all of that, Trump not simply because he couldn't capture other institutions, but specifically, and I think this is important to understand the Vance Master stuff, because he was always opposed by the GOP donor class, because he never had his own donor class. It's not simply that he couldn't staff certain offices that would have aided him. It was also that Unless you were a kind of like half a nut job or an ideologue or a weirdo, you know, a Darren Beatty type or something who's like obviously, you know, not a kind of conventional careerist, 
Like, unless you were somebody like that, why would you risk going to work for Trump when you knew that that might mean you would then be frozen out of these other institutions? Now, of course, you can point to the ways in which those other institutions were eventually forced to hire Trumpists, but A, that wasn't clear from the beginning. And some of it was a consequence of like the brute force of his popularity with the actual voters, GOP voters. But it's also the case that, you know, those people are are frozen out of a lot of places. So it wasn't simply that Trump couldn't staff certain administrative offices. It was that he didn't have a donor class behind him that could fund the kind of institutions that keep the apparatchiks in work. You know, which is like what these people want is to cycle through from the think tank to the government job where like they want to be part of a big, vast bureaucratic apparatus that will provide them with sinecure. And um, there are better or worse versions of that. Right. There are like more or less totalizing versions of that. Uh, but with the teal thing, especially in combination with Musk and this kind of coalescence of a counter elite that includes people like David Sachs and Mark Andreessen and Balaji, uh, Shrivenison suggests, and I, I don't mean I don't mean to imply that like all those guys being billionaires are part of a single determined cohort, but um, they share certain goals. It seems to me, and and certain I would say even more than goals, they share certain institutional strategies. And what that means is that there's now money behind something. And because there's money behind it, it's possible to staff it. So what do I think of uh, the fact that Masters and Vance can now be treated, you know, like somewhat sympathetically in, in Vanity Fair? I mean, I think it suggests, on the one hand, an open acknowledgement of their cultural influence that is easier to reckon, a cultural political influence that's easier to reckon with now because they're out of power, right? That you couldn't deal with as forthrightly while Trump was in office. Um, and, and you know, I, I should say like right before I, I read about two thirds, I haven't finished the Manny Fair piece, but I read about two thirds. I feel like I have a, you know, I have a, a pretty good sense of it. Uh, you know, and, and uh, three weeks or a month or so before it was published, I ran a big profile of Curtis Yarvin in tablet that um, was making the case that Yarvin was this very influential figure and, you know, and that he had to be grappled with because of his influence. And the biggest criticism that piece received was that I was overestimating Yarvin's influence and it was, uh, you know, it was a puff job. And, and so, so the point is like that it, it has become obvious. It has become undeniable the degree to which somebody like Yarvin is informing the shape of these political movements, right? It's it's undeniable. And I also think that it's become undeniable that Yarvin's analysis of the cathedral in particular names something real. And as much as uh, people would like to ho-hum about that and say, oh, this is just Althusser, or this is just like a standard Gramscian critique. First of all, they don't themselves, the people who claim who ho-hum about it, don't themselves engage in that Gramscian critique, right? They don't, they don't actually dissect the manufacture of consent. They take this stuff for granted. So it's mere, that's a strategy to, to try and uh, neutralize it, in my opinion. But um, they yeah. are more serious politically. The, the political aspect of it, I would say, 
is more serious. I don't think they're trying to represent themselves as populists, which is a smart move. Yeah. I don't think masters, is, they are explicitly trying to represent themselves as, as aristocratic in some sense, as a counter elite, as the proper uh, stewards of the national interest. Now, because I'm a small D Democrat, I am opposed to the establishment of an aristocratic class in America. And I also think that the uh, politics organized around competing billionaire blocks is bad news all around. That being said, it's clear that one billionaire block right now, the Musk, Andreessen, Sachs billionaire block, is positioning itself in opposition to the managerial ruling class block that at the moment exercises far more uh, assertive and intrusive control over what people are allowed to do, say, think. So like one class is a has ambitions as a totalizing regulatory class. And the other one, you know, this new counter elite, we don't know exactly what they want yet. I hope, you know, I, I hope we don't grant them enough power to like have to find out as passive instruments of it. But it's not clear exactly what they want yet. I doubt it's simply to restore uh, some kind of harmonious uh, uh, American social dispensation, even if some of them earnestly believe in that in part. Um, it seems unlikely that that would be uh, the motivation. Balaji, for instance, is clear that what he wants is to break the whole thing apart and, and uh, you know, come up with like the new model of the sort of um, crypto city state. But but yeah, that's that's how I look at it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, kind of similar to what we said about. Um, I, so one thing I've seen just from the Musk move, as well as in response to the Vanity Fair piece, is that suddenly all these people on the left are willing to be much more open about their own sort of alliances and affiliations. <clears throat> like, you know, you basically have people saying, well, yeah, actually the real enemy is this kind of reactionary billionaire cadre. And so that means, yes, like we are allied with um, the Ford Foundation and the Open Society Foundation right, right. and and like, yes, we, I mean, I wrote a piece for um, Compact that was sort of about this, that, you know, that, I mean, yeah, it, it does seem to me that um, it, on one hand, the sort of status of much of culture and discourse as a kind of proxy war for these kind of billionaire, um, these billionaire conflicts, which, you know, it's, it's unclear kind of what exactly the real stakes of those are, but, but you know, it, it, it has been interesting to see there was an article in like New York magazine just saying, oh yeah, well, basically all the supposed grassroots energy of the democratic party is really just a kind of astroturf foundation, you know, and this right. is like somebody who's, you know, sort of, you know, part of the sort of New York socialist set saying this, right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's all just um, astroturf stuff that comes out of open society and Ford foundation um, projects. And then it ultimately just um, it all peters out because it's, fundamentally inauthentic and <laughs> and um so that was interesting to see um and then it was also interesting to see people saying well yeah like we we do need to um defend the you know major corporate media and their interests because 
you know, say what you will about them, at least they're hostile to the sort of reactionary billionaires, right? So it's, yeah. I mean, there, there's been a lot of openness among these kind of, you know, younger New York sort of socialist leftist journalists and stuff about these kind of things, right? Where they're actually saying, yeah, we are basically a, a PMC formation. Most of what we do is funded by a handful of foundations and, you know, that's basically who we're allied with. But, you know, let's be clear, the real enemy enemies are, you know, Musk and Andreessen. <laughs> yeah. And I should so, say, you know, I, yeah, I think, uh, um, you know, I saw the John Gans thing and, um, you know, one of the things to me that's just like, I don't know if unforgivably dishonest might be too harsh, but um, blindingly naive, perhaps, uh, is this notion that the faults of the current system, which is preferable to the alternative because it will hold back these reactionary billionaires, that the faults of the current system can be accurately characterized as, you know, unfortunate excesses of wokeness or something like that. Yeah, the unfortunate, but let's be, let's just be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves and then we can be honest about the choices that confront us. The, the current censorship regime is not a censorship regime led by overactive, progressive zealots. It is not a censorship regime that is threatening principally because it, uh, you know, wants to enforce uh, what are, are perhaps misguided gender pronoun rules. That is a preposterous and evasive construction. What we're actually talking about is a censorship regime in which the White House and multinational corporations in concert with a vast NGO apparatus funded by a small set of billionaires determine what we can say about life or death matters. That's what we're actually talking about. We're not talking about gender pronouns. We're talking about masking. You know, what we are allowed to say about the efficacy of masks. You know, Jeff, you wrote a very good piece about you know, this meta analysis showing that the, the effectiveness of masks at stopping the transmission of COVID was very effective. You know, good for you for writing that. But and to take nothing away from it, but a year prior to that, any reasonable person could have looked and, and seen that these ridiculous cloth masks were not going to be effective, right? At the same time, when they were saying don't wear masks, it was clear that N95s were effective. And that's why people were on hospital staffs were wearing them. It was equally obvious that tearing up a sock and putting it halfway over half a nostril was ineffective. But we couldn't talk about that honestly, right? And we couldn't look honestly at the very serious evidence that the president of the United States and his son were involved in corrupt business dealings with countries that are, are, are you know, now affecting uh, in very direct ways, you know, the most serious possible national security decision of the United States. We couldn't talk about that because that was censored by these organizations who are acting on behalf of the Democratic Party, the disinformation apparatus. So be halfway honest, be halfway serious and acknowledge that that's what we're dealing with. This is not a debate about cultural excesses. About so this is not a culture war debate. That's an evasion. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, and I I made the point um, yesterday. I think that I mean another thing you've seen a kind of you know there are various things that 
you know, at a certain point you're allowed to say. And so one thing I've seen is, um, you know, there, uh, there was like a New York times op-ed, there was Matthew Iglesias. There's a few other things kind of questioning the whole framework of the disinformation, you know, the sort of counter disinformation, um, project. Right. Um, and I, I think my, my depressing conclusion is that the reason you're allowed to criticize that in these mainstream outlets now is that it's already built into the bureaucratic apparatus of the state, right? Department of Homeland Security has a disinformation shop, right? Like they're- they're... Disinformation (laughs) shop staffed by somebody who played an active role in spreading the false claim that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation. That's who's staffing the new disinformation shop, DHS. Right, exactly. So, you know, it's and so in other words, you can sort of say these things now because the bureaucratic inertia is already fully set in. This stuff isn't going anywhere any more than any of the stuff that was um, that came out of the Bush war on terror era has gone anywhere. And, um, Amen. You know, that's exactly right. <laughs> I, I couldn't yeah. agree with and you. So, more. Yeah, no, Iglesias is if you open up to the like picture of artificial negativity in the dictionary you're gonna get matt iglesias holding up that article that's that's it amen yeah well why don't we wrap it up um but you know i think as we're saying all these um themes that were explored in depth by picone and his colleagues at telos remain extremely vital so i would just point anyone back to uh to you know i really i'd pick up you know any any old issue and uh, <laughs> you'll find some stuff that really resonates. I think you will. Thanks for um, having me, Jeff. This was fun. I'd also, yeah, pleasure. And I'll, I'll link to your uh, pieces that you mentioned, um, which, you know, are, are relevant to the conversation and uh, people can follow your podcast manifesto and you're writing a tablet. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.